0: Well, good morning, Four Corners Church. What an amazing thing that we're here praising God. We can look back on our lives as Christians and we can say, God just, God just entered my life. He, he just miraculously and graciously saved me. And where would we be, what would we be, if not for His grace. We would not be here this morning singing His praises, hearing His word, and confessing our faith with our family, the people of the living God. So we just rejoice. We praise God this morning. We come with gratefulness, with gratitude in our hearts. I, I hope that that is the way you come every Lord's Day to worship, with the local church. I pray that is the way we live every single day. One of the things that strikes me most as we go through the New Testament again, and I hope you're doing that read through the New Testament in 90 days. By the way, if you haven't been doing it, you can start today and just get the prior stuff later. But one of the things I like to do is listen to the Bible. And sometimes it, I spend so much of my time in the details and sometimes listening to it just kind of an entire epistle read, and then over and over and over again, it gives you a sense for the whole. You get the big themes. You, you maybe don't get some of those details that you get when you study with a pen and paper. When you listen, though, you get some of the big themes. And one of the big themes throughout the New Testament is to give thanks to God through Jesus Christ. It's massive. And so I pray that is the heart we come to this service with this morning, If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans 4. We enter Romans 4 today, specifically verses 1 to 12. The full title for the sermon this morning is Faith Not Works, Back to the Beginning, Part 1. Forgive me for that long title. But before we get into the text this morning, I want to Take a few minutes to dissect the title as a way of introducing the sermon. You hope, in preaching, to capture the main idea of the text in the title, at least the main idea of the message. The main idea of the message should be the main idea of the text, and you hope to capture that in the title. And so I've tried to do that, maybe in a bit too too much of a comprehensive way here, but I want to take a few moments to dissect this title to help set the tone or at least uh, to set up the sermon itself. So first, the title itself, Faith Not Works. The first four chapters of Romans are focused on the doctrine of justification. So this occupies the, the bulk of Paul's intention In these first four chapters, he's setting up his doctrine. He introduces it, verse 16 and 17, chapter 1. And then he sets up the need for it, 118 to 320, and then 321 and following. He explicitly lays it out. These four chapters are about justification, specifically justification by faith. And to be even more specific justification by faith alone. As we talked about last week, if we were to identify one verse that brings this out clearly, I think it would be from our passage last week, chapter 3, verse 28. If you want to kind of see what is the heart of the first four chapters of Romans, chapter 3, verse 28, for we hold That one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The big idea of the first four chapters. And this is the theme that now takes us into chapter four. We are justified or declared right with God or before God, put in the right before his eyes, before his consideration. It's the opposite of being condemned. To be condemned is to have a verdict of guilty and a sentence of death. To be justified is to have that reversed. No more condemnation. So this theme takes us into chapter 4. Declared right with God by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, not by anything we do. And I found this, as I was thinking about this, I found this ironic because... As we were in chapter 1, verse 18 to 3.20, I think there's a general sense in which that is, that is very sort of humbling, very heavy. It weighs on us. For, for chapter after chapter, verse chunk upon verse chunk, we are told how awful we are, how sinful we are, and how deserving of death. And hell, we are on account of our sin. And that was very humbling. It lays us low. And so we might tend to think that when we get to chapter 3, verse 21 and following, enough with that stuff. Now we're going to be elevated. We're going to be lifted up. No more of that being brought low. We're going to be lifted up. But here's the irony of it. Not so. Because when we get to chapter 3, verse 21 and following we are brought low in the sense that we are told that it is absolutely nothing in ourselves that makes us right with God. And so whether we're being told that we are sinful and that we deserve death, or we're being told that we have no works and must rely entirely on God's grace in Christ, we are brought low. And so let me say this. If you don't like being brought low, the Bible is not the book for you. It's not the book for you. Because behind every verse and every chapter and every book, we are brought low. It is in the nature of the Christian gospel, God's message to human beings, that we be humbled and God be exalted. Where we are exalted, we're not looking In the right place. God's word, even in the explicitly good news parts, brings us love. That's where we've been. That's where we are. And that's where we will be, this side of heaven, until we are made like Christ and glorified entirely. And even then it will be to the praise of his glorious grace for eternity. So now, why the subtitle, Back to the Beginning? So we understand the title, Faith, Not Works, but why the subtitle, Back to the Beginning? Well, as Paul asserts and explains and defends the doctrine of justification by faith, not works, he wants to go back to the beginning of the Jewish people. He wants to go back to a time before the law, before there was Israel, before there was God's holy people, the nation. Remember, Paul is expounding a doctrine of justification by faith for all people. It is for Jew and Gentile. How many times have we heard that language? For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For Jew and Gentile, we've been told this repeatedly. We could go through and look at all the instances going all the way back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul has made emphatically clear that this gospel, this means of being right with God, this way of God, this way of salvation is for everyone. And so Paul is expounding this doctrine and he takes us back before Israel, before the law or I should say before the law, and even more before Israel. So he goes back to the father, the great-grandfather of the Jewish people, Father Abraham. He's the beginning. And he spends all of chapter 4 focused on Abraham. And when I thought about moving from Genesis to Romans, the first thing that came into my mind was chapter 4. I mean, as far as I could tell, and correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's anywhere else in the New Testament where so much attention is given to a single Old Testament character. Of course, we have Hebrews 11 where so many different characters are mentioned. And we have little bits, a little bit about Job, a little bit here, lots of bits about David. But nowhere in the New Testament do we get such extended focus on one Old Testament character. And so it was, for me, very natural to move from Genesis to Paul's letter to the Romans, and particularly to get into chapter 4. Not only is Abraham the father of the Jewish people, and not only does he take us back to a time before there was a Jew-Gentile distinction, that distinction did not exist with Abraham, but also Abraham was regarded as the quintessential righteous man by many Jews. The Jews in Paul's day, if you were to talk with them about the example of righteousness, they would go to Abraham. He was not only the father of the people, but he was a quintessential example of what the righteous man looks like. And we'll talk more About that, in a moment, as we reflect on Jewish sentiments about Abraham. And what Paul will do in chapter four, as we move into that chapter today, what Paul will do is put Abraham forward as the great illustration of his doctrine of justification by faith. So, Paul has expounded the doctrine at the end of chapter three, particularly verse 21 to 26, and now he wants to illustrate it by giving us. Abraham, justification by faith. See, look, look at Abraham. So there's the title and the subtitle for our time in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Faith, not works, back to the beginning. And the text calls us to do three things as we look at these verses. So three things. To focus our attention, first learn from Abraham, listen to David, which is meant to confirm what he has to say about Abraham, and then finally look at the order. Talk there about circumcision with regard to Abraham. So learn from Abraham, listen to David, and look at the order. And today will be part one. We'll focus today only on that first point, learn from Abraham, and we'll continue with the other points next week. So if you would, please go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We will look at Romans 4, 1 to 12, but today we'll focus on verses 1 to 5. This is the Word of God. It is perfect and profitable for His people and the very means that God uses to save sinners. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Or, it could be translated, what has Abraham found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God... For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So that's what we're going to look at today, those verses, and now what I'm about to read is what we'll pick up with next week. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verse nine, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and just worship God for his word, for what he's done, and for what we anticipate he'll do this morning. Father, we come before you now to look into the riches of your word because we know, as you've taught us throughout the Bible, that you speak to your people. Just as we saw at the beginning of chapter 15, the word of the Lord came to Abram. You come to us by your word. We hear you speak and we respond. God, we ask this morning that you would speak to us as you already have as we read your word, but Lord, that you would illuminate our hearts, that you would would take the word and lodge it within us, that your spirit would do his internal heart writing work within each of us. Father, we pray for our kids who are here this morning in the children's space, but also in in the service, that they would have open ears and open hearts, that you would help them to see, even if they don't follow specific lines of reasoning or catch details like the adults, Lord, that nonetheless they would see your glory through your word, your majesty would come clear to them and God that they would put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins Lord we pray for any among us today who is not a Christian that you would show them that and you would regenerate their hearts and grant them to believe in the Son of God in the Christ Father for all of us we ask for spiritual refreshment just as you told Peter at the end of John, to feed my sheep, to feed Jesus' sheep. and You do that by your word. So Lord, now would we feast on your word? Would we eat this morning and find refreshment, find nourishment for our souls? God, how much we need that. Just being human beings, but in our world today, how much we need to be encouraged, not in our own exaltation, but in our humbling and in your exaltation through your gospel. So, God, we pray that you would do that work among us today. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we look at verses one to five this morning, as we learn, from Abraham, as we see there at our first point, we're going to come at this from three angles. So these are, these are actually the points for the sermon this morning, uh, but they're going off of those, at least the first one. So you can write these down if you would like, but this is what we're going to look at as we learn from Abraham. We're going to come at that from these three angles, Pretty easy to remember, pretty easy to write down. First, Abraham in tradition, Abraham in Scripture, and finally, Abraham as illustration. So as we look at these five verses, that's what we see. In tradition, in Scripture, and as illustration. So let's look first at Abraham in tradition. Look at verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. What then, shall we say, was gained... By Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Father Abraham. We spent months, not just weeks, but months walking with him as we made our way through Genesis. He is introduced at the end of chapter 11, just introduced to us, but we really get him as a character emerging in Genesis chapter 12. And he remains the focus of the story all the way up through chapter 25, where the text transitions to Isaac and very quickly to Jacob. To use the words of Matthew chapter 1 verse 2 as we move towards Christmas, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So Abraham is the great father of the nation. Now in one sense, Jacob is the father of the nation because he fathers the twelve sons whose descendants become the nation. So this language of the patriarchs gets kind of confusing. Who are the patriarchs? Well, in one sense, they're the 12 sons. They're the heads of the tribes. In another sense, it's Jacob because he's the father of those 12 sons. But beyond that, it's also Isaac and ultimately Abraham, the great-grandfather of the nation, Father Abraham. The significance of Abraham for the Jewish people cannot be overstated. He was, as Isaiah 51, 1 to 2 says, the beginning point. Listen to what Isaiah says, or what the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah there in chapter 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you. When I called him, he was only one. I blessed him and made him many. The rock from which you were cut, the quarry from which you were dug, is Abraham. How significant he was in the Jewish mind, in Jewish tradition, in Jewish life. From one to many. One old man from Mesopotamia. Nobody. Who was Abram before that? Nobody. Just a guy. One old man married to one old and barren wife. And God turned him into the father of many nations. And particularly of the one nation through whom he would bring the Christ and through which he would give his great oracles, his word. What an amazing thing when we consider. It's it's one of those things that just never grows commonplace. When you just consider what God did in Abram's life and how he brought about a nation and many nations through this one old man and his old and barren wife. It's incredible. It is truly breathtaking. And this fact was not lost on the Jews. But as the Jewish people looked at Abraham as Isaiah 51 tells them to do, They by and large erroneously found an example of righteousness by works. Now we saw how in the Sermon on the Mount that the traditions of men had perverted the law of Moses, the law of God given through Moses, and how the the traditions of men had taken and twisted God's law to say something that it did not say. Or to take it in a different direction from what it was originally intended. Well, the same was true about great father Abraham and the traditions surrounding his person and his righteousness. So, Abraham had become the quintessential meritorious man, the quintessential man made right by his works. Let me give you a few quotes from Jewish literature and rabbinic tradition, rabbinical tradition, before and around the time that Paul is writing Romans. This is the sort of the spirit of the age when it when it came to thinking about Abraham. Here are a few quotes. We find that Abraham our father had performed the whole law before it was given. Really? The whole law? I believe we saw some sin in there when we looked at Abram, Abraham's life. You remember? You remember the lies? You remember Hagar? Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Look at Abraham. You therefore, O Lord, that are the God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance unto the righteous, unto Abraham. Abraham didn't need to repent. He was righteous. He was good. He was a good man. Was not Abraham found faithful in testing, and it was counted to him as righteousness? His righteousness was found in his deeds. That was the picture of thought about Abraham or Abram. The emphasis among the Jews of Paul's day was on Abraham's works, works of righteousness, his merit. God looked at him, saw his righteousness, and responded accordingly. Now let me just say something about, when we think about reform theology, when we think about the differences in understanding of God's grace. If your view of salvation is like that, that is below where the Bible puts it, at the very least. If your view of salvation, even in how you think about faith, is that God saw something in you and responded to that by saving you, wrong. That's not the biblical understanding of human nature. And God's grace, there's still merit there in that model. God looked at him, saw something good there, and God responded to that within him merit, good, righteousness. That was the view about Abraham that was circulating largely among the Jews when Paul wrote this. And where faith is mentioned in Jewish sources, it is infused with the idea of merit. So let me give you one rabbinical quote here where faith is actually the emphasis, but listen to how it is conceived. And this matches what I was just saying before about how sometimes we can think about our salvation. So you find that our father Abraham became the heir of this and of the coming world simply by the merit of the faith with which he believed. The merit of his faith. God sees it. God likes it. God rewards it. That's your view of salvation. It is not what the Bible teaches about grace and human nature and sin. But remember what Paul said about justification back in verse 27. As we think about this rabbinical quote, remember what Paul said there. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. If the Jewish picture of Abraham were true, then Abraham would have grounds for boasting. If the picture that the Jews had painted regarding Abraham were true, then Abraham would be able to say if you pulled him before Paul and the other and the readers of Paul's letter, he would be able to say, "Well, yes, let me tell you about myself. Let me tell you about my deeds." And for that matter, as we talked about faith, let me tell you about how believing I was towards God. Let me tell you about my merit. What Paul is saying is, what he's already said in verse 27, is that there can be no grounds for boasting in light of the gospel of justification by faith. And that brings us to our second point, Abraham in Scripture. Abraham in Scripture. So we've seen what the Jews largely thought about Abraham now let's see where Paul takes them. So can Abraham boast in his righteousness? Look at the latter part of verse 2 and verse 3. Not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God and that was reckoned to him, credited to him, counted to him as righteousness. That is Genesis fifteen six. And it's it's interesting, I was just looking, it's just anecdotal. I was looking uh, at when I went back, I went back and looked at the sermon that I preached on Genesis 15:6, and it was right at exactly two years ago. It was the, the first week of November, two years ago, we were looking at Genesis 15:6. And here we are, right back there as Paul. Cites it, And Paul will also quote this verse in Galatians 3, 6. And what he says is, if you want to understand Abraham as righteous man, if you want to understand Abraham as a biblical character and as a biblical hero, this is what you have to understand. He was justified by faith, not by works, and therefore not by merit, not by anything within him. So we know what the tradition says, but what does Scripture say? That's what Paul wants to get at. He wants to take them to the text that they say they hold to as authoritative, and they say they believe, and say, look, what does this text tell us about salvation and about Father Abraham, and therefore about all of us? I want to quickly make a note about Paul's use of Scripture here. I want you to notice two things about how Paul uses the text of Scripture. First, notice its authority. For Paul, if the Scripture says it, that's it. That's the final word. And where do you think Paul picked this up from? Well, he would have picked it up from his Jewish heritage, but he would have also picked this up from Christ himself. Jesus is making a point with the religious leaders, and he he refers to some very small fine point in John 10, some very small fine point in the Old Testament, and he parenthetically says, this is the case. Do we not read there? Oh, and the scriptures cannot be broken. And then he moves on. The scriptures cannot be broken. They are authoritative. If you can demonstrate that this is what the scriptures teach, that's the final word. That's it. If the scripture says it, then it is. That's part of Paul's worldview. That's part of his assumption. And he makes no apologies about it. Paul does not feel, and of course he is writing, he is directing this toward a Jewish mindset. But Paul doesn't make any apologies for appealing as his presupposition the authority of the word of God. It is what it is. It is truth. Self-evidently so. So I want you to notice that briefly, and then also I want you to notice its present relevancy. Notice how Paul refers to the Scriptures. He doesn't say that the Scriptures said, but he says the Scriptures speak present tense. For what does the Scripture say? For every generation, the Scripture speaks now. For every generation, God speaks through his word in the present tense to us. God says, does the scripture not say right here and now in our faces, in our ears, to our hearts? So what does scripture say with regard to Abraham's righteousness? Well, a few things. So let's take a minute to look at these. Actually a couple things we'll we'll look at here. As Paul cites Genesis 15:6, what does scripture say with regard to this man's righteousness? First, Paul says it was counted or Genesis 15:6 says it was counted to him by another. Now notice that God reckoned Abraham righteous. It wasn't something he had within himself. It it does not say God recognized his faith as righteousness. It doesn't say that. It says that God credited this to his account. God counted it to him. This is the language of of bookkeeping. This is the language of crediting something to someone one's record or to someone's account it is legal and it is the language of an accountant god reckoned it it wasn't something he had within himself it was a status notice this that god gave him god gave him this status and that's the reason why you'll often read that this is an alien righteousness The righteousness that Abraham had contrary to the Jewish view of the time was that this was an alien righteousness rather than an innate righteousness. The Jewish understanding was that this righteousness was intrinsically part of Abraham. What we read here is that it is a declaration by God of Abraham as a gift. It is gracious. It is a gift. So we see that. Second, as Paul Quotes the scripture here, we see that it was not based on merit, but rather on faith. Concerning faith, John MacArthur comments this faith is never the basis or the reason for justification, but only the channel, the channel through which God works his redeeming grace. Faith is simply a convicted heart. Reaching out to receive God's free and unmerited gift of salvation. Not something we earn. Faith has been variously described as the apprehender and receiver, as a readiness to accept what God promises, as a response of trust to God's prior initiative of grace but it is without merit. Now, let me just pause here for a moment. If faith itself were meritorious, as many Christians today believe, really believe that faith is meritorious, literally that God looks down before he created the world into the future, he sees your faith. And on account of that, he elects you and then works in your life and saves you and gives you glory. That is meritorious salvation. That is contrary to everything Paul is saying. He is setting up a contrast between faith and works. Because where there is works, there's merit and boasting. Where there is faith, there cannot be merit. And therefore, there cannot be boasting. Our doctrine of salvation... Can leave no room for boasting. If it does, there's a problem. There's a problem. God graciously counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. God looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ on Abraham's behalf into the future. And what does Jesus say? Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he was glad. We oftentimes think, you know, what uh, the patriarchs, how were they saved? They, they were saved through Christ. God put forward Christ as a propitiation for all sins. He, he bore in patience with Old Testament saints, with all the nations, rather than destroying them. He bore with them in patience, anticipating putting their sin on Christ at the cross. And Abraham looked forward to Christ. Jesus says that explicitly in John 8, 56. God graciously counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. We, as we hear this this morning, have only one response to God. We trust simply what he has accomplished through Christ. We trust his word of promise concerning Christ and we trust that he has accomplished it through Christ for us. Appropriating that in hope of eternal life which God has promised. God who cannot lie. This faith that was counted to Abraham as righteousness had been operating since chapter 12 of Genesis. So you might read this. You're into chapter 15 and you're thinking, I remember when we came to this, you're reading chapter 15 and you're thinking, hold on a second. Now, all of a sudden, Abraham believes. So so God's been watching Abraham. He's been doing all these things, whatever, going through. And then chapter 15, God says, I'm going to bless you with many descendants from your own body. Takes him outside, shows him the stars. As many as the stars of heaven will be your offspring. And now Abraham believes. And God credits it to him as Righteousness. That would be the wrong way to think about this in that kind of temporal fashion. Rather, what, we've been, what we read in Genesis 15 is what has been true of Abraham from the beginning in chapter 12. We know that because of Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So the same faith, that looked up into the heavens and saw the stars, heard God say, as many as the stars will be your offspring from your own body, and believed, also believed at the beginning of chapter 12. It's just at chapter 15, the Holy Spirit wants us to understand justification by faith from God's grace. That's when it's inserted. Where then... Where then does this leave Abraham's boasting? Well, the same thing Paul said in verse 27 of chapter 3. It is excluded. Why? Because his righteous status before God was by faith, not by works. But now we kind of leave Abraham for a moment as we come to our third point. Well, it's not up there. But our third point, Abraham as illustration. So we've looked at Abraham in tradition, Abraham in Scripture, and now we come finally to Abraham as illustration. Paul will continue to discuss Abraham later in the chapter. We're going to read a lot about him, and I particularly like the end of the chapter where Abraham's saving faith is discussed and dissected in detail. I look forward to that. But in verses four to five, he moves away now from Abraham to the principle itself that Abraham illustrates. So we've been reading about Abraham. Paul has corrected tradition with Scripture. And now he's going to sort of come up from Abraham and show that everything he's just said is an illustration for a larger principle. Justification by faith. This is what he says. Verses 4 to 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Moving from... The example of Abraham, Paul here identifies two problems with works righteousness. So I want you to see these These two things that are fundamentally wrong with a view of righteousness by our works. We can earn right standing with God, that by our works God looks at us and is pleased with us. There are two fundamental problems with that view of salvation that Paul addresses directly here. First, if righteousness is by works rather than faith, then God owes us something. He owes us something. That is why Paul will later say in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Let me say it this way, grace, salvation by grace, depends on salvation by faith. Grace depends on faith. God does the work, and we trust Him. If it's the other way around, or if it's any other way, then God is just paying us back for our works. We've done some works, and God pays us back. In that model, God owes us something. He is in our debt. We are workers receiving our compensation no one who goes off to work for a day or week week or two weeks or a month when you get your paycheck from your employer oh so gracious of you so generous of you no i worked for that money right that's what you say i mean you may not say it but that's what that's compensation for your work you go to work you get paid for your work right That's what's in view here. Compensation, receiving our compensation as workers. In a works righteousness system, God is placed under obligation. May it never be, God forbid, by no means, to use Paul's famous phrase. God placed under obligation to us. That's every religion of the world. That's the weak, unholy, impotent God of the religions of the world. Whatever flavor or form he may take. Works righteousness. We are then under obligation, or God is then under obligation to dust, sinful dust. How incredible. If you are saved any other way than by God's free gift of righteous righteous standing based on Christ, received by faith, then God is simply giving you what you are owed. No glory for God in that. How will you exist eternally? To the praise of his glorious grace. You won't. You'll exist eternally to the praise of your own merit, to the praise of your own righteousness, the praise of your own goodness. But that's the glory of the gospel, is that we will live eternally, and we will truly, eternally celebrate God's grace. He gives freely, and we didn't earn it. We deserved hell, and He gave us life. We deserved eternal destruction, and He gave us eternal bliss. We deserve to live eternally with demons in torment. And he gives us eternal life with him. That's the first problem with works righteousness is that God becomes a debtor to us. But this brings us to the second problem with works righteousness. What we are owed truly is death and hell. Why? Why? Why are we truly owed death and hell? Well, because we are ungodly. Look at verse 5. We believe in him who justifies the ungodly. Think about this for a moment. Before you were justified, you're a Christian, before you were made right with God, God looked at you and he saw ungodly before you were made right with God, declared, rather, right with God through Christ, when he looked at you, get all other teddy bear imaginations out of your mind. When God looked at you, he saw ungodly. That's it. Before we are justified, we are idolaters, rebels, and haters of God to the core. To the core. This word, ungodly, is a strong one. These aren't mistakes and errors. This isn't oops. This is strong word for sin. And it gets to the heart of our problem. We trample on God's glory. We lack piety and worship towards God. We trample on Him and treat Him as nothing. Nothing. That's the heart of our sin problem. It's not what we do within our own selves, the destruction we bring in our own lives. It's not what we do to other people. What did David say against you and you alone have I sinned? It's that we trample on the glory of God. That is the fundamental evil of sin. Ungodliness. We dishonor our maker. How ghastly is it? Maybe you've seen this before. You probably have. In public, maybe not. How ghastly it is when we see a child or a teenager strike his or her parent in the face and scream curses at his or her parent. How ghastly, how wicked, how evil, how unsavory. That is us with God. Imagine the worst, naughtiest, to use a British Word, the naughtiest child in a mall or wherever reaching over and smacking his mom, yelling curses at her, slamming the door in her face. That's nothing compared to what we've done to God. That is the reason God has told children to honor their fathers, and their mothers because it is a picture of what they must do as Christians. It is a picture of what we ought to do towards God. It is where they learn submission to authority and honor towards a higher being, God himself. This is the problem with works righteousness is that we are all by nature ungodly. Ephesians 2, verse 3, children of wrath. By the way, anyone who tells you anything other than that about yourself before Christ is lying to you. That's not worth listening to. In fact, anyone who tells us that that's not who we were before Christ, we should plug our ears and run away because it is ear-tickling and demonic. This is the truth about us. This is us. It is self-esteem smashing. Apart from Christ, this is the picture of human existence and it included Abraham. Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 to 3. Listen to how Abraham's family heritage is described. Despite the fact that he comes from Noah through the line of Shem, thus And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abram came from a family of pagans. He came from a family of idol worshipers. Listen to this, to the Jewish year, this would have been breathtaking. Abram, was what Paul described and his family at the end of Genesis 1. I mean, at the end of Romans 1, where the Gentile is described. The hater of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and so on and so forth. This is the world that Abraham came out of. Abraham's just like us. He's a sinner. He's ungodly when God justifies him, when God made him right by faith. As we progress through Romans 4, we will talk more about what saving faith looks like. And I look forward to getting to that. What, is, what does it mean to believe the gospel? What does it look like in our own experience? And I think that's a, that's a very interesting topic, especially if you struggle with assurance of salvation. What is saving faith? What is it feel like? What, what is it? How does it operate in the mind? What are the evidences of it in the life? What is saving faith in contrast to things that aren't saving faith, that counterfeit non-saving faith? And we're going to get to that at the end of Romans 4, but here I want you to see a few things about it already. Just a few things as we close this morning. First, And by the way, let me just say this. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. What I'm about to say to you is, is a call. It's a call for you to put your faith in Jesus. But this is the faith that you are to put in Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. It's the call of the New Testament. So you're asking, well, okay. Believe what? How do I, how do, what, what is belief? What is belief? This is a good start. First, justifying faith rests nothing on works. So first and foremost, we see verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes. Now that is a startling statement. To the one who does not work but believes. It's probably the only time in scripture, I mean I'm sure there are others, but probably the only time in scripture where we are actually told to not be good workers. It's kind of it's kind of startling. And to the one who does not work. When it comes to saving faith, there can be no works. You don't come to saving faith as a worker. You come simply as a believer. No works allowed. No workers. No workers allowed in this line. Justifying faith rests nothing on works, have in your mind that there's absolutely nothing that you have done, are doing, or can do that would receive one ounce of pleasingness from God. One ounce. And that when you stand before God, there's absolutely nothing that you could point to. Not a single thing you could point to and say, but God, here, look at this. Look what I did. Nothing. Zero. Zero. Get it out. Sweep it away. Justifying faith rests nothing on works. Secondly, justifying faith views self rightly. Verse 5, we believe in him who justifies the ungodly. Part of what it means to become a Christian, to have a sound conversion, to truly believe, is to recognize that you are a sinner who deserves hell. So if you're not there this morning, beg that God would get you there. Beg that God in his mercy and his grace would show you that you are a sinner, an idolater, a rebel, in need of his pure grace and that you deserve hell. You know, it's startling to think that in many churches, hell is never talked about. And yet we're told here That justifying faith, that very thing that is the means God uses to save sinners, especially in seeker-friendly churches who are by nature saying that they exist for evangelistic reasons and that they do what they do for evangelistic reasons. And yet we see here that evangelism itself happens when justifying faith takes shape in a heart. And that can't happen unless a person realizes they're ungodly before God. They're ungodly and they're deserving of hell and need grace. If they're never brought to that point, how will they have justifying faith? Who are they believing in? Not the God who justifies the ungodly. Maybe the God who justifies the messed up. Or the people who make mistakes. Or the people whose lives are just in shambles. But not the ungodly. Because that's the issue. Finally, This leads to the third thing we see about faith. How can God justify the ungodly? That's a repulsive idea. So we've just we've just celebrated it. Now I want you to understand it's repulsive. It's it's astoundingly repulsive. God is the perfect judge, He's the just judge. All throughout the Old Testament, we read that a judge should not acquit the unrighteous, the, the wicked, the criminal. Any judge who acquits a criminal is wicked and deserves not to be judged. So it is repulsive in one sense to read that God, the just judge, justifies the ungodly. What? No! No! But then we remember that this faith is in Christ Jesus. We've been reading about this from the beginning. This is not just general faith in God. This is faith in Christ Jesus. And who is Christ Jesus? Verse 25 of chapter 3. The one whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How is it that God justifies the ungodly? Because he took Christ and put our ungodliness on Christ, Christ paid the penalty for it and he takes Christ's righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and he puts Christ's righteousness to our account. He justifies the ungodly because he punished the godly. He justifies you because he crushed Christ in your place. So here we already see three things essential to saving faith. Works must be out of the picture. We must understand who we really are. And finally, we must look to this propitiation. The godly one who for our sake and our sin was treated as ungodly on the cross. Because he punished our unrighteousness in his perfect son, we can be credited with this righteousness forever. That's what we're here to celebrate this morning. I pray that that has happened in each of our hearts. And if it hasn't, would you let this sermon today truly unsettle you? Would you let it, in a sense, crush you and break you that Christ might rebuild you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for justification by faith alone, from grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, which we learn about in Scripture alone. God, we thank you for what kindness you've shown us, Lord. We see our lives, we see our sins, we see our life before we came to you, before you brought us to you, before you changed us, you saved us, you drew us, you regenerated us. And Lord, we just cry out to you in humble praise because we deserve nothing from you, but hell. And God, we just uh, take this time this morning to celebrate your kindness and grace towards us in Christ. We thank you for the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit. We thank you that hearts that are wicked and ungodly are transformed by your grace and made into those who seek after the kingdom of God and his righteousness who set our minds on things above, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, who walk in a manner fully pleasing to you, who have love for all the saints. God, what a blessing. What a gift. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.